1: Marketed Choice is a proud
2: sponsor of the Meaningful Marketplace because we believe in the power of local craft makers to reinvent the way food and beverage products get to market in Oregon. Our vision is to inspire, mentor, support, and assist local producers to reach their fullest potential. For over 40 years, Marketed Choice has been supporting our local farmers, ranchers, fisher folk, and entrepreneurs. We believe the way we source products has a positive ripple effect across our great state. That's why we are proud to offer over 7,000 local products to our stores and that the majority of our purchases support our robust regional food system.
1: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Masonian Marshall, The Meaningful Marketplace. Thanks for joining us as we hear the stories of female food entrepreneurs. This is Sarah Marshall, owner of Marshall's Hot Sauce. And Sarah Masoni at Oregon
2: State University's Food Innovation Center.
1: We're glad everyone has joined us live today. We're honoring our uh, social distancing and still calling in for shows. Uh, since we're a live show, we think it's important for us to be here with stories of hope and inspiration for all of our food friends out there. So here we are. Woo-hoo! <laughs> Sarah, how was your week? I didn't even get a chance to investigate what you were up to.
2: Oh, gee. Well, you know, I took Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday off, and we've been working on getting our little Doughboy pool installed in our backyard. Ooh, that's cool. And... um installing it is almost as complicated as buying it it took like eight weeks for it to get delivered and then about two weeks to get everyone lined up that we needed to like we had to find a pipe fitter to run the natural gas to the heater and we had to have our electrician come out it's just so complicated then we had to have north northwest natural gas come
1: it's a big story Well, it's going to be worth it once you get to lounge by the pool. <laughs> yeah.
2: I'm going to take some time off in August, I decided,
1: and just sit by the pool and maybe read a book. That's a great idea. I love that. And yeah. we had our um, our call this week with the Portland Culinary Alliance, and that went good. Yeah, I thought we were great. I think we had a fun, fun group of people there with us, um, and we raised some money for the equitable giving circle, so that's cool. Did you hear how much we raised? Uh, I didn't. They didn't tell us yet. I haven't checked in with anybody, but once we know, we should let people know. But it was just a fun thing to do and a good way to raise some money and some um, recognition for a local organization. I'd never really heard of them before, and it sounds like they're doing some really cool stuff. So everybody should check them out. I do have some food news for today.
2: Oh, yeah, so,
1: so do I. Yeah. Oh, cool. Do you want to go first? Sure, but... Um, okay,
2: so the food news, which um, our new our guest for today, Faith, helped me with this, because she had heard two great things. The food um, scene in Portland is jumping right now. They're trying to figure out how to do digital holiday events, and Food Love PDX has something on their Instagram talking about that. So check that out. And then the Good Food Award applications are open right now, so you can prepare your food sample and get that sent in. There are some different um, requirements for sampling, so make sure to read the fine details. And also the Fancy Food Show folks um, have rescheduled for the Sophie Award judging. It's going to be in the end of August, and it's at Rutgers Food Innovation Center.
1: Cool. So everyone's still trying to find ways to do all of the events, but just in a different format, which it's nice. People are getting innovative with that stuff. Yeah, it lets you be creative. Yeah, I like it. Uh, well the food news that i had today was um, we have a one of my favorite local sauce makers in town david from Hob sauce he won a special award this week so if you're in the sauce making world there's a lot of different competitions that you can enter and stuff so david entered one and he won first place in the world for it's called old bony mountain hot summer night international hot sauce competition and culinary experience <laughs> it's, a- <laughs> it's a- a oh very long title. I'm not sure that that is all necessary, but it doesn't matter because he won first place. So congratulations, David. That's really cool. That's Good job great. representing Portland. If you have um, any food news that you want us to help spread the word about, it can be awards, events, new products, anything you want, send us a message. We'll tell our listeners about it um, and we'll help spread the word about all your stuff. So send us a line. Uh, speaking of food award winners. We have one with us today. <gasps> <laughs> yeah, we're joined today cool. by Faith of Jazz Spirits, based in Portland, Oregon. Jazz Spirits is inspired by the forests of the Pacific Northwest. Faith forages for and distills wild botanicals for these spirits that she collects from Oregon. So super cool. Welcome, yeah,
2: Faith. It oh, um, said,
1: <laughs> treetops to forest floor. I love that. Indeed. Very poetic. (laughs) Indeed. Well, we're so glad you could be here. Faith, we want to help to tell your story and connect you to other makers and customers. Can we start by you just telling us how they can find you? What's your social media
3: info? Yeah, Um, I'm most active on Instagram. So I'm at Jazz Spirits. That's J-A-Z-S-P-I-R-I-T-S. Uh, So, only one Z. Uh, And then they could also go to my website, jazzspirits.com.
1: Perfect. Well, so they can find you and follow along on your um, story. And we want to help tell people about you. So, why don't we just start with the name because I know your name has a special connection to your life. So, you want to talk about that?
3: Yes. Yes. So, as I mentioned, Jazz Spirit has one Z. it stands for Jack and Zoe, who are my kids. Oh. Um, the time that I launched the uh, the, the business, um, I had um, kind of overcomplicated my life, you could say. Um, it was not really the life that I wanted to live. We, I was running three businesses simultaneously. Um, and really, I felt like um, the things that really made me happy and fulfilled me in life kind of took a backseat to just like all this stuff that I had to do and really didn't, really didn't get that much satisfaction from. <laughs> so, uh, jazz spirits was really intended to, um, you know, pull back, refocus, um, make more deliberate decisions as I, as I moved through the world and through business as well. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of a different, uh, philosophy in liquor. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I remember no, when you first told me that that's what your company name meant. And as you were telling me that, you were like, and so speaking of, I need to get home to my family right now because <laughs> we were both like staying too long at something. You know, I think we were setting up this yeah. <laughs> or something like that. And it was like, oh, that is such a good reminder. When the name of your company is your children and your family, you're like, and that's what I got to go do. <laughs>
3: <laughs> it's it's seriously right in front of me to remind me like there's people that actually want to see me that care about me. And um, you know, in a lot of ways I feel like this is they're kind of my my best contribution to the world. <laughs> you know, whatever else I do, and <laughs> they're the ones that actually care if I if I'm around and you know, they'll remember me after I'm gone. So yeah. <laughs>
1: Well, I like I liked that um theory because it keeps you connected to your fam just all the time because I think uh, you know we hear from a lot of food entrepreneurs that um you know the business can be so all-encompassing and you're putting so much of yourself into it that sometimes you forget to stop and pay attention to everything else in your world that's important like your fam. Agreed. Okay. Um, you mentioned running three businesses. And I did want you to talk a little bit about the business that you sold because we've never had a guest on the show that has had a business and then sold it. So could you talk about that a little bit?
3: Oh, I'd love to. Yes. So I started Bees and Beans, which is a uh, handmade artisan candy bar company in 2010. Sarah knows what it is. So I started in 2010. um, And the philosophy there was um, to make a candy bar that you don't feel bad about eating. So um, it's not really so much about calories as it is about quality of ingredients. Um, And it's also about just enhancing that experience from like a Snickers bar to something that you're like, I just, I just really had a moment there, you know, with my candy bar, like, which is, um, really what I feel like a lot of us specialty foods people are, are, are doing. We're trying to create a moment for our customers. And, um, so yeah, I started it in the last recession, actually, uh, 2010, right in the heart of it. Um, I started off, uh, with a two-year-old and a four-year-old and I was making them out of my house. Um, so I made them out of my, uh, you know, licensed domestic kitchen for three years before we moved to a commercial space. Um, during that time, I, I grew very organically and very slowly, very, very intentionally. Um, and uh, at, at some point, I, I split the brand from uh, doing um, a variety of, like, compostable packaging, uh, three or four candy bars, Um to more of a wholesale line where I actually did a high and a low version of our best-selling product, which was the Honey Bar. Um, so what you'll see in the marketplace in Portland in the wholesale market is the Honey Bar Reserve, which is the high-end bar and the Honey Bar Junior, which is our like everyday purchase. You know, it's like it's like $2 or something, hundred calories, $2 kind of idea. Um, But what makes uh, Bees and Beans special uh, is that it uses local honey, local hazelnuts, bean-to-bar chocolate, and um, I think Sarah can agree with me that, uh, you know, in 2010, there there weren't that many bean-to-bar chocolate manufacturers, so it really meant something to use a bean-to-bar chocolate producer at that time.
2: Yeah, right Um, around that time, I was working with a company out of Ashland, and they were trying to copy— the Snickers bar and the Mars bar, and I had to convert it all over into organic. And I found one of those bar, one of your bars on the shelf. And I was like, yes, this is so good.
3: It was, yeah, there's, they stand, they're still so good. And you know, the other thing I like about it is that, uh, you know, taking something like a Snickers bar, but making it something that you feel a little bit of better about. So converting it from, you know, corn syrup or glucose to honey, you know, using, um, a higher percentage chocolate and, you know, uh, compensating for that when you're talking about tempering, yes. um, all of these things, uh, you know, my background is as a pastry chef, I, I was a classically trained pastry chef, um, and I was trained that you don't use honey in this type of application because it's impure. You know, it changes batch to batch. And uh, the very European-based uh, confectioners that I trained with wanted the same. And they wanted to be everything very precise and, you know, uh, very analyzed. Meanwhile, bees, you know, they're not scientists. They're bees. They're making honey according to their own specification. <laughs> and it will vary batch to batch to bucket to bucket, you know, you'll get a different honey. Um, so what I really started leaning into with bees and beans was, um, really capturing that sense of time and place. So, you know, I would get a spring honey and you're getting more of the, like the tree pollen. Um, and then the late summer honey, you would get a little bit of that wild carrot, which is a darker honey. Um, so even, even that way you would find, um, Differences in the the flavor, you would find differences in the texture of the final product because the sugars are different. You know, they're not even working with the same types of sugar. You know, right. in their honey, so it really uh, helped me to like hold things with a loose hand, you know, work towards consistency. But when a honey function differently, to really celebrate that for people and just help them understand, like. What you're eating is connected in more ways than um, is just surfacely available. Um, so, all of this is to say, I think you're getting the idea that I have a lot of passion for it, and like even now, like four years after I know, I, sold I was it. gonna
2: say, do you miss that business? Um, I, I, I don't. Um, do yeah, free. Do you get free bars for life? So, like you go to actually the grocery store, we wrote you have that a card. It we says wrote that I into developed. the sales agreement. <laughs>
1: that What's was that? part of
3: the sale. Um, it was a certain, certain amount of, because that's that's why I started Bees and Beans, right? It's like I needed it for me. It didn't exist. So I started this company and um, I, it's not that I was like, all I want to do in life is make candy bars. I just wanted them to be there, you know? And they weren't there, so I made them. And that's really a lot of the way I'd like move through the world is just creating and then
2: yeah I mean the mundane part is repeating it right after you created it and then you have to make it over and over again man that can be really exhausting
3: it can be exhausting but there's also something really beautiful and this may be like a pastry chef trait of uh you'll notice like when you dip when I would dip it would be they would be all in a row and they would all look the same you know they're all facing the same way that you're getting like the same. And there's something very satisfying about that. Or when you're packaging row after row after row, there's something so satisfying about seeing your progress and seeing them all lined up kind of like little soldiers, you know, they're just cute. And um, you have to find the joy in that part of it as well. It's Mm -hmm. not just the, you know, as much as I love brand building, it's not only that there's also a satisfaction of just like, having that connection with each piece of hand-dipped chocolate, you know, Mm -hmm. or um, doing all of your packaging by hand where, you know, like every single one of these has like my little stamp of approval on it. Um, So so, yeah, all of that's just a, you can see like, it's, there's a passion place for me. Um, And by the time I was thinking about sales, like it had gotten to be like, um, you know, sales were big enough, they're national, they're getting to be at the point where it was like um, my puppy had grown into a dog that was too big for my apartment. (laughs) And I was like, you need a farm is what you need. You know, somewhere you can run, somewhere you can, you can get as big as you need to get. Uh, And I just recognized, like, I love this so much. So I started um, kind of knowing in my own like mind and heart that that was the path eventually for it. Um, it was a healthy business. I knew it was, it had potential to grow still. Um, But I also knew that like, it was probably time to pass it on to the people that had that correct set of skills for the next level. So um, I actually sold it to a production lead. So it stayed in the family. Um, She had come on board. She just loved the product. She was passionate about it. Um, She believed in it. She um, had expressed a desire to be a small business owner on her own. And in fact, she had um, spoken about like a a chocolate shop that she would go to when she was a girl. And, um, you know, what a special place that was for her. And I just, I fell in love with her. You know, she um, just, you know she was exactly who I wanted to pass the business on to. So it was, um, it, it happened at a good time. It was, I was in a transitional time. I was, um, starting uh, jazz spirits. And, uh, so I was very happy to, um, pass it on to her. Uh, we negotiated a sale price. I stayed on as a consultant. I worked shifts for her if she needed it. Um, I, I, you know, gave her the, uh, I guess you'd say the roadmap for a new wholesale product that I had all but launched. So all the work was done. It was just a matter of launching it. And that's called Lil Mint. Um, So yeah, it was a a good experience for me. It was a good experience for Andrea. She has her shop on uh, Burnside and she's actually in the process of moving to a new location, which will give her more space. And when things open up, perhaps little event space too, you know, there's, she's in, she's ready for her next phase now, which is fantastic. So,
1: so it's nice to hear a good story of someone who has sold a business and still has a good relationship with that person and that you guys are still in the same town doing things together. It seems like it was really part of your decision to find the right person to take over for you. Yes. So let's get into jazz spirits and how you started that. So you, you said you were kind of getting into it when you still had the other business and you made the decision that this was going to be the path that you wanted to go down into the spirit world. How did you make (laughs) the decision?
3: (laughs) I love that. The spirit world. (laughs) Um, So it's not as crazy a leap as it sounds. Um, So I I really approach food uh, from an ingredient standpoint and a storytelling standpoint. So with um, Bees and Beans, the story was, you know, the Willamette Valley honey and the hazelnuts and the bean to bar chocolates and the, you know, Oregon sea salt. Um, From the jazz spirit standpoint, um, I was really uh, stepping into a place that's dear to my heart, which is the Oregon you know, national forests and, um, these kind of some, you know, some people call them like wilderness areas. Um, but they're a place that I grew up, you know, I grew up in the forest. I grew up, um, you know, engaging in nature. Um, and I do think that, uh, it has happened where, Oregon really leans into the farm culture um, and, you know, all of our Marion berries and our um, fantastic tomatoes and, you know, our Pinot Noir grapes, but uh, there, there's a, there's a story of um, food that goes back further than that, um, which, you know, comes down to our native foods and indigenous foods. Uh, and that's a story that um, I really hadn't seen expressed. So I was happy to, you um, kind of find a place for that in uh, this new business that I was launching and hopefully introduce people and maybe invite people into that a little bit more um, at whatever level they're comfortable. Even if it's like pouring themselves a drink in their living room, they're still engaging with Oregon forests um, and they're still, you know, experiencing the sense of place um, through their, what they're consuming, um, their food, their drink. So what uh, is uh, cold tree gin? So cold tree is, I have a visual. Aid. So cold tree is an old Tom gin, which uh, some people are not familiar with. This is uh, it's a uh, chronologically. It's actually older than like a London dry. So it's somewhere between your Geneva and your London dry. Um, and Old Toms are defined as being lightly sweetened and ready to drink. So they're a little lower proof than uh, a London dry. Um, There's something that uh, the function was to actually fill a mug and just drink it. Like, yeah, like on the streets.
2: (laughs) You know, I went when I was a teenager. I went to England and I was tooting around there for like six weeks and I went on a tour bus and they would stop for a break, and everyone would drink gin with no tonic, <laughs> no ice. <laughs> they would, like, pass around a bottle, and they'd pour it in the cup, and I was like, "Whoa,
0: that's strong.
2: Yeah. Sarah, so, have, you, have you had her spirits before? No, but I oh, need man. to get some, because gin actually is my favorite.
1: Well, it, so... I mean, I don't know if you, how you describe your spirits, you're probably so much better at it than I am. But the thing that I really like about them is that when you think about gin, you do think about, if you're just going to describe a regular gin, it's kind of like, oh, you know, it has this like pine needle or, you know, what juniper or whatever juniper, it is. So yep. Those are the things that people usually describe. But the things I love about the the spirits that you make is that like the, the vodka, the spruce tip vodka especially. That's probably my favorite one that you have because I love it because it is, it's not, it's a vodka, but it's in a way kind of like a gin because it has that kind of like foresty pine, pine yeah. thing going on. Um, but everything is just so gentle. It's like it's um where mm. sometimes if you have like just a like any kind of random gin, it's like a punch in the face. But the yeah. flavors that you have in there are just kind of like they're whispering at you instead instead oh, of hitting that. you hard.
3: Oh, that's nice, Sarah.
1: Yeah, that's I was a saying, really
3: nice description.
1: Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell I've spent a lot of time with your products.
0: Yeah, <laughs> they're whispering
1: <laughs> to you out in the backyard. <laughs> well, I think you mentioned growing up in the forest, and I think you know I did too. I grew up on yes. Mount Hood. I can't remember where you grew up. I know you've told me before, but where where uh,
2: she was all Southeast over Alaska. Yeah. Kind of all over, yeah. right. Wyoming, yeah. she said, and New York. Yeah. And but I do think it is,
1: I think the mountains and the forests are like, it's a different experience that people have. And, and because there isn't much else around, you know, you're surrounded by these things and they, you really like become part of them. And so I think that I'd never, it's kind of like you're it, the, the other business, it's kind of like you created something that doesn't exist. like the the products that you do specifically didn't exist. It's not usually done on such a small scale. And that's one of the things I was wondering is that um, you know, do you think you'll get to the point again, like you did with your other business, where it's time to pass it on to somebody else because you can't keep up with the distilling process of it?
3: Yeah, that's a, a great question. Um, I do think there are parts of uh, the kind of the exclusively wildcrafted products, the, uh, the spruce tip and then the uh, perpetua, the salal berry liqueur. Um, those by nature should stay small.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, by nature, you're limited by what you're removing from the natural environment. So... The storytelling aspect is that, you know, me and my family, we go, we we harvest from national forests and then we uh then I, you know, basically capture those flavors in as pure a form as I can and then present them to you all. Um that said, uh there needs to be space within a brand to grow. Um so I have Cold Tree, which is kind of the flagship product, and then River Rain, which is my newest product. Which is um, a dry gin. So this might be closer, um, Sarah Masoni, to like what you might experience as a gin, like that you would have had in England. But the difference here is that there is a real Oregon touch to this. There is um, cottonwood buds. Um, you might know them as uh, balm of Gilead. Uh, so they. Uh, contribute a propolis flavor, kind of a honeycomb flavor, to the gin that is unlike anything you've ever had. Um, and then the other fun thing is uh, there's mature Douglas fir needles in here as well, so mm-hmm. it's not a it's not a conifer tip spirit. It's the mature needles, which taste different than the tips. Yeah,
2: I, I have a medical question. Sure. So if you have an allergy to douglas fir or to the cottonwood trees if you drink this gin will it take care of your allergies
3: oh i couldn't possibly answer that with any sort of authority (laughs) what i will say is it comes out of the still very high proof and it um not to be very woo woo but it it truly is the spirit of that ingredient so you're not getting the base part of the the thing that Again, I cannot answer this with authority, but it's you're not getting the 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 part that makes you inflame. It you're just getting the spirit of it, the breath of it. But
2: mm-hmm. what if we mixed it with like bee pollen and honey and stuff? I think it might be
3: kind of like a healthy tonic. We should drink this. I would say <laughs> that that the most I could possibly say is I think that maybe if you mixed it with bee pollen and honey, it might take care of your allergies. That's as far as I feel comfortable
1: going. (laughs) Well, I think no matter what, you're going to end up with something delicious. So either um, you're just having a great beverage or you're having a great beverage and you're taking care of your allergies. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. you're kind of So,
3: but the thing I love about the um, using the the cottonwood, uh, buds is it's, it is a very wild and very like place evocative ingredients that really does stand forward as far as the botanical profile. But I have to get, you know, such a small amount for that to happen that I can, I can actually increase that, uh, to a a higher production level without affecting our, our natural system at all. So, um, and another thing that I, really prioritize when I choose my ingredients is, um, is uh, sustainability. So you will never find me like digging at the roots of a wild plant or taking a bark or um, something that's going to affect the growth or the, um, the life uh, cycle of that plant. So, um, you know, the tips, that's just really, it's sort of like cutting the fingernails of a tree when you take the, the spruce tips. The salal berries, there's really not that many uh people eating salalberry now, whereas like years past, native people would gather just thousands of pounds and use it to trade all over all over the coast. Because they would
2: uh, dry it and mm-hmm. use it almost like a raisin.
1: Will okay. you yeah. explain and you know, a, what the flavor of that is like for any of our listeners who haven't had it? Like how would you explain yes. it? Kind of blueberry, so, huckleberry a little bit. Agree.
2: Maybe a little yeah, tomato-y. So I say,
3: yeah, there's like a savory note to it, that tomato-y. I, I say that, um, so I only harvest my salal from the, the uh, Oregon coast, and I have a specific forest that I harvest from the Law because it gets a constant um, uh, exposure to salty air. Like if you've ever been to Cape Perpetua, which is what Perpetua salal berry liqueur is made for, You'll, you'll remember the crashing waves, you know, there's always salt in the air, you can taste it. So in August, when I harvest the berries, there hasn't been a lot of rain all summer, or all of August, and the salt is almost crusted on the berries, there is a little salty outside of the berries. So um, my liqueur has the flavor of the huckleberry, the blueberry, and it has a little bit of a truffle note. And it has like a, an olive, like a green olive, specifically. For olive nerds, Castleville, Toronto olive, so it's a really like um, noticeable difference—the difference between um, a salal berry from the forest I harvest from versus an inland forest like Mount Hood. You'll notice a difference in flavor.
2: Do you just do you pull them off the stem because that's the biggest pain in the you know what is getting you know eventually off they the do
3: eventually I do need to destem them, but um, I'll remove the I think it's called a stipe. Uh, so I, I removed that cause it, it basically wants to fall off. Like that's the nature of it. it it's like a of cluster of
2: grapes almost.
3: Yeah. Kind mm-hmm. of grows like currants a little bit. Um, so it's very easy to move it. And that's also the safest way to move the berries is, is attached to that. So then when it's time to process, then I just take scissors and go snip right up the, right up the string. Cause they hang like little, um, like Christmas lights or like, you know, uh, yard lights. So they're like the main string and then there's a like tiny string and then there's like a little ball on the end. So it's very easy to just come through and snip right across. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, you know, a little bit of, just like in winemaking, a little bit of stem increases the tannins. It's not a terrible thing. You're not actually going to feel the texture in the product yeah. because this is a, you know, it's a filtered product, but, um, yeah, it, it's not a fast process. It, takes us about five days to get what we need for about 30 cases a year. Have you thought about freezing?
2: Have you thought about freezing some and then producing later?
3: Yes, that would work. Um, Really the biggest issue for us is um, the actual harvesting. So the other thing about the other ethic that you, you practice as a wild harvester is you never clean a zone. You never take all that, that, area has to offer. In fact, you should, depending on how trafficked that area is, you're talking between like 10 and 30% of what that, you know, plant is providing. Yeah. Um, so it's not the same as a farm. So there is a space in, in the world for things that are special. And there is a space in the world for things that are, um, you know, valued because they're rare. Um, we are not as tuned into that in the United States, I would say, as maybe in other areas of the world.
2: But can I just make say one thing about foraging? Think, we need to make sure that people understand that you can't just always just go into a forest and forage.
3: That's a really good thing to say as we're talking about this. Even people yeah. who think that they know, they need to be, they need to think they know and then they need to confirm it before they consume it. Yeah.
2: But also, um, sometime you have to get a permit from the people that manage the forest.
3: Yes. In fact, if it's a commercial operation, that's an always. And that's not only um just to to cover my butt, that's also to um, to to express to the people that are managing the forest that there is value in the forest besides logging.
1: We're um, going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, I want you to describe your flavors in detail. Ooh. I'd love to. <laughs> so we'll be right back, everybody. Okay.
0: Oregon State University's College of Agricultural Sciences and the Food Innovation Center are proud sponsors of the Meaningful Marketplace. Committed to serving all Oregonians with the mission to advance the science that lives at the crossroads of conservation and production. We are inspired by the creativity of food innovation, new economic opportunities, and new experiences, because food brings people together.
1: Okay, so we're back, everybody. And I would really like, Faith, if you could tell us about each flavor and then give us details about them, because I do think what you do is so special, and so I don't want to skip over that part. Good point.
3: Okay. Yeah. No, this is, it's, it's my joy to, to do that. <laughs> 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 so I'll start off with the spruce tip vodka. So um, as uh, Sarah mentioned, uh, this one is is a nice. Um, it is a vodka technically. It's it falls under the botanical vodka category. Um, so it's made with a fresh harvest sit- Sitka spruce, uh, which is a coastal tree, and um, it has a fresh, bright green flavor. So I describe this one as in the treetops so imagine yourself maybe you know in a coastal forest and you crawl up to the tree and there's a coastal breeze and that fresh air that that um marine influence that like um fresh like citrusy uh, aroma is what you get from the uh spruce tip vodka and this one works really well in martinis it works well in vodka soda i'm not sure how you like to drink it sarah but um you can I just do, drink it
1: with sparkling water on ice.
3: I love that yeah vodka soda that's what I drink mm-hmm. out in the garden like like a lot of times in summer it's just very it feels very um, hydrating
1: yeah and, I, uh, I actually with all of your stuff i I try to not mix it really with anything because I like the the flavor of it you know so uh, yeah. so either I'll just drink it on its own or just with a little sparkling water.
3: oh I love that. yeah
1: Spruce tips are full of
2: vitamin C that's probably why it tastes nice and citrusy.
3: Yeah, yeah, and the process on this is really unique. So you may have seen other conifer tip spirits on the market, um, but it's actually a really hard flavor to harness. It's difficult to harness. Um, most of my products, I have a pretty clear idea of the flavor profile I want and how to get there. Uh, it takes two, three batches to really kind of tune it into the to what I want. This one was like twenty two. Runs that that's a lot. Did you drink it all? <laughs> no, I I did. I mean, uh, it's it's a uh, it's funny when when you talk about R and D, people think that it's fun to like taste ten different examples in a row. It is not. It is. <laughs> It's not
1: fun. <laughs> when I when it's I hard. was testing um, recipes, a recipe for my cookbook, I was trying to figure out how to explain the timing of toasting pine nuts, and ah. and so I kept having to taste them over and over again with the t- the exact timing of it. And there's this thing that happens if you eat too many pine nuts, which I didn't know um, at the time. I found out later, um, but I couldn't taste anything. Like all my ever, well, I could taste. <sighs> I could taste everything, but everything tasted bitter. So it like coats your taste buds to a point that for two weeks, every single thing that you taste, tastes bitter. And so I was in the middle of testing all these recipes for my book and everything tasted terrible. And I went to my doctor and he was like, "Um, I don't really know what's going on. Let me see. And he ended up calling me back. He's like, have you eaten a lot of pine nuts? I was like, yeah, I have actually more than any in my whole life because I've been testing this recipe.
3: I feel like this is a... This is a, that's a very important story for people that are like in this industry of this like, what a nightmare.
2: (laughs) That happens if you're trying to use the non-nutritive sweeteners, like stevia and monk fruit and all that stuff, man, it burns your mouth out fast.
1: That's what happened. It was so weird. I'd never experienced that in my whole life, but Mm -hmm. so sometimes doing taste testing isn't fun.
2: (laughs) It happened to me also one time I had to taste like I don't know, 45, um, blue cheeses. yeah. I was so
1: fried after that. Yeah. It burns you out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) So
3: if the Verstovia was the (laughs) treetops river rain is the, the river banks. So the riverbanks. um, this is inspired by like the upper Clackamas river. So, you know, there's, there's river rock, there's, um, Douglas fir forest. There's uh, cottonwood trees all around the riverbanks. And in fact, the name river rain is in reference to the area around the river. So river reen would be in the river. River rain is around the river. Um, but it also sounds great and it's fun to say. So, um, I name things based on like, is it fun to say like, that's part of how I choose names too. <laughs> So this one is, um, I say this is one that like uh, your grandmother would recognize as a dry gin. Like it has traditional botanicals, but it has our Oregon um, ingredients of the cottonwood buds and the uh, Douglas fir. Uh, So this one has been delightful in a lot of like the shaken drinks or the, um, you know, uh, with soda water um, or gin tonic. So I love this one. uh, Like in a French 75, or in a gin tonic, or as a martini. So um, I've also been exploring this with some other like, highly botanical spirits. So some of your, you know, vermouth, samaros um, that kind of thing, and the botanicals do very uh, well. So there's quite a bit of alchemy that can happen with this one, which is so fun. Um, so from the river rain, from the riverbanks then we'll go to the forest floor so coltree, as I said was the um old tom so I also mentioned that it's lightly sweetened I use honey in this guy which is very difficult for a distiller like um there's really no great solution to clarifying honey out of the spirit so I um I Still feel like it's worth it for the body that honey brings, the flavor profile it brings. Um, yeah, you know, fining is too aggressive. Racking um, with uh, just time as things settle out has been my my solution and then uh, filtration on top of that. But one thing I love about this is that it's unlike any gin you've ever had. It's on the dark spectrum of gins. So when I say it's the forest floor, it's like rich and it's dark, it's layered. There's lots of ingredients um, and it's uh, it's quite warming. So I think of this as a winter gin. So something that you can take your, you know, your French 75 and drink it around your Christmas tree and it's appropriate. Um, whereas like French 75, I think of uh, typically as a summer drink. Or you can make a uh, gin and tonic to enjoy on uh, Christmas Eve. You know, uh, it's quite uh, you're It's a different gin for sure. And then the the final product is the Perpetua Salalberry Liqueur. So this is by far the most rare. So I was mentioning um, that I do all of the own, my own harvesting. Um, this one is um, evocative of the deep woods. So. Think of like mushrooming, you know, when you go, you go deep in the woods, you're looking for porcini or, or, uh, chanterelle, like you're in there, you're, you know, it's dappled sun. It's, 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 it's in there. So, um, I say this one is kind of, um it's kind of savory. It's got a nice, uh, velvety texture. So you can add this to anything like half ounce. You can add to your daiquiri and it adds like a velvety texture and like depth of flavor. Um, it does have a little bit of that salinity, that olive, uh, quality to it. Um, which kind of helps bring balance to cocktails as well. So yeah, I'll slip a half ounce into my Manhattan. I'll slip a half ounce into my gin tonic. It works in like martinis like really I haven't done something I don't like with it so yeah
2: sounds delicious
1: I'm gonna have to go get a bottle of each and put it in my bar she's so good at telling people and and describing the experience of drinking her spirit so I'm glad that we got to do that (laughs) storytelling
2: is super important for the success of a food or drink don't you think Sarah
1: Yeah, I think so. I think you have to be good at, especially now where we're like out sampling to people. I mean, selling to people, but without sampling, they only can go off your descriptors. (laughs) And so we all have to get really good at it. If you weren't good at it before, you need to be good at it now.
2: (laughs) Now, um, Faith, you said you moved a little bit outside of Portland. Did you buy a place with a big barn and you set up, your still there? Or are you like, do you have it out in the woods or what are you doing?
3: The stilling is pretty different than other food businesses. Um, the regulation is, is extraordinarily high, uh, more so than beer, wine, cider, any of that. So uh, when I came to market, um, I was looking to, you know, go the traditional route, get, acquire still, acquire a space. Uh, and really I was, I was, uh, put off by the extraordinary expense and the fact that it takes like two years to get to market because of uh, legal hurdles, two years if you're good at it. Uh, So I went kind of an alternate route. As we all know, there's more than one way to get somewhere. Uh, So the way that I got there, if if there's like, if there's like a, a fortress size fence around a distillery and you're like, you have to go through this gate to get there, and it takes two years and it's expensive. I was like, I bet I could just dig under there and just come up in the middle. And it's legal. So I did. So um, I actually shared space uh, to come to market with Wild Roots. Um, so they helped me come to market with Cold Tree at the very beginning. And then uh, about a year and a half later, as I was um, working to expand my product line, um, I moved into uh, Vivacity Fine Spirits down in Corvallis uh, because there still is uh, kind of a small batch, very adaptable, uh, almost modular still. Um, so the, the good thing about that is I'm able to do small batches of weird things uh, without the overhead of a full-fledged distillery. So I operate at like probably a 20th of the overhead of a, of a large house, but because we live in a control state like Oregon, I'm allowed to be on the same shelves at the, as those large houses. I'm avail- allowed to be at the same events as them. I compete in the same uh, awards as them. So really like it's a pretty level playing field in Oregon, as far as like how you present to the, con- the consumer. But I really would like to move the idea forward in, um, in spirits. This idea of collaboration, this idea of working lean do and you sharing know, equipment.
2: Do you know there's a, st- a still at Oregon State University in the food science department? And we I have didn't a, know that. And we have a dedicated professor. His name is Paul Hughes. And there's usually several graduate students at any given time working on different distilling projects. Um, oh. Actually, the College of Agricultural Sciences is one of our sponsors. Um, huh. for our radio show. So I'm giving them a little pitch right now. Uh, so yeah, if you want to get in touch with Paul, just let me know and I will totally connect you.
3: I actually would love that the still is, you know, used to be in Corvallis. Now it's in Albany. Okay. So it, it kind of makes sense to team up with uh, with some folks down there.
2: Yeah, because I think, I mean, I don't know what the cost per day for the still is, but the use of the pilot plan is pretty reasonable. It's only $800 a day, and you can use whatever equipment you need.
3: Yeah, that's great. I will say my overhead is lower than that. Um, But yeah, I really do think as we move through, like, especially right now where most distillers are talking about like being down like 70% in revenue, um, and like we're looking, a recession in the face at this point, um, with less selling opportunity, I really would like to move the, the conversation forward for, for makers of all types about how we can work leaner, how we can be smarter about how we, you know, share, you know, shipments or equipment or even labor staff, um, you know, so that we can be successful through this hard time.
1: That's a good idea. When I was in France a couple of years ago, um, there was a group of people that were all makers and they just used one facility. And I guess this is what they do all the time. So instead of like here, we all have our own separate kitchens if we're all you know, jam makers or sauce makers or whatever. But this was like a community space that anybody could go into. It was actually run by the you know, the state or the territory or whatever it was there. I don't, I don't know, (laughs) but, and people would use it as a community to make their product. And it was just part of the, of that, you know, place. And so you wouldn't even pay a certain amount. It was part of like their taxes. It would be cool if there was something like that here. Cause I think that's the, it's the hardest part is like, we're all kind of doing the same things when maybe we could be doing it collectively a little bit. Easier and cheaper. People have to spend so much money to get these kinds of things started.
3: Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. And I'm really thankful for the idea to even share space with someone else. Um, One of my winemaker friends, uh, John Groshaw, suggested it um, because he's like, we do it all the time. Like, you know, new labels come up and they share space with somebody. They, you know, uh, practice mentorship with those people. You know, there is this uh, feeling of, like helping everyone, like move the whole concept forward. Um, you know, Oregon Pinot Noir became great because of a community, not because of one winemaker. And I do think that, um, I would like to see that same sort of revolution happen for spirits. Um, at this point, like I, I'm on my own little mission to, to make that happen at whatever level. Um, but I do think that, uh, it's time for people to start thinking about things um, differently, uh, not only as far as like how our product is perceived on a global market, but also, um, you know, think about how we can run this so it, it works for everyone. You I know love the fact that, that I pay, the, the way that I pay uh, my uh, fees to um, Vivacity Spirits helps them offset their monthly costs. So it's doing them a favor. Honestly, most stills are are empty most of the time. So uh, it really does make sense for people to think about how they can work together. Um, so I'm, I, I am hoping that uh, there's a revolution in so many ways right now. But that is uh, one way that I think that uh, we can help the whole maker community
1: move forward through this. Yeah, I think right. so. Well, Faith, we are almost out of time. So I just, we have a couple of final questions for you. Um, I wanted to know if you have any advice for female food entrepreneurs out there that are wanting to start a business. So
3: um, I don't know if it's, it's exclusive to female food producers, um, but I would say my best advice is to know who you are, to know like what your business is and why you're there. Um, One thing I would say is that, you know, if you have a tight and well-defined concept that helps you um, be confident and that helps you um, have answers ready when people are questioning how you're doing, handling your, your operations. Um, And it makes for easier decisions as you move forward. So keep your concept tight, really know who you are, uh, know what you're doing, know why you're there. And that'll just pave your way like for years to come.
1: I think that's good advice for people out there. You got to figure out your own stuff first. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then one thing we really like to do is direct people uh, to how to buy your product from you. I know that I ordered it and got it delivered to my door, so I know it's very easy, but can you tell our listeners how to get your product? Yes. So one of the
3: good things that came out of the um, the COVID shutdown is uh, the ability for Oregon distillers to deliver product to people at their home. This is a new change in law and hopefully it will become permanent. Um, so you can go to at your co and um, you can uh, search jazz spirits and all four of my products are there. They'll be delivered the next day to your door, which is great. Um, other than that, you would go to uh, Oregon and uh, you would uh, search each product, and they'll um, show you which stores have the product in stock. But if you want a reliable way to get it, you should go to At Your Door. Now, they can
2: only deliver two bottles at a time. So it's two
3: bottles of the same type and up to six all all together.
2: So So you can order all of them.
3: Yeah, you can order all four and have them delivered. Um, There is... Still regulation, but it's so much less than what we deal with on a normal basis that like I'm just totally celebrating it. I'm so excited that they're they're finally allowing it. It's, yeah. it's probably 50% of my revenue right now is is um, direct sale.
1: It yeah. was really nice. I had never used it before; or didn't know about it before, but um, it was so easy and so nice. I ordered it for um, Dirk for Father's Day, so I was able to get all your stuff, and it came. If it wasn't the same day, it was maybe the next day, but it was really yeah. an easy process. Very nice.
3: Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear that.
1: <laughs> yeah. All right, Faith. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show today. We are really glad to have you and hear your story. And I hope that everyone um, tries your products and loves. And enjoys them as much as I do. Thanks for coming well, on the show. Thank you so much, Sarah and Sarah. Nice to meet you, Faith. Yeah,
3: thanks for letting me tell my story. Yeah, you bet. Market of choice is
2: Mark is. Ooh, starting over. Market of choice is Oregon's largest independent, family-owned grocery store with ten stores in Oregon. It's all about choice. We focus on having a wide selection of the finest and freshest conventional, natural, organic, local, and health-conscious products. We have more than 1,300 teammates, including real, authentic chefs, bakers, butchers, cheesemongers, florists, and more. We all strive to create an authentic, relaxing, and enjoyable shopping experience with our customers and truly care about the communities where our teammates and customers live and work. To find the Market of Choice nearest you, visit our website at www.marketofchoice.com. At Market of
1: Choice, we buy local, so you can too. We record Missoni and Marshall live every week. Tune in Fridays, or you can find us on your favorite podcast platform. Find us on your favorite podcast platform like iTunes or Stitcher. Thank you to our audio engineer, Alon, and our production assistant, Chelsea, and we will be back next week. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye for now. (laughs) Committed
0: to serving Oregonians with the mission of advancing science that lives at the crossroads of conservation and production, Oregon State University's College of Agricultural Sciences and the Food Innovation Center are inspired by the creativity of new food development. We strive to find new flavors, new economic opportunities, new experiences, and honor diversity. We are proud sponsors of the Meaningful Marketplace because good food brings people together. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen. Learn. Launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.